You're listening to the Joy Junkie Show podcast, episode 410. You can find information on anything referenced in this episode at thejoyjunkie.com slash 410. You're listening to the Joy Junkie Show, your source for getting your shit together in love and life. Wouldn't it suck if I really talk like that? Without further ado, here's your host, life coach, speaker, all-around badass, Amy E. Smith. Hey, hey, pod people. Amy here. And this week, we are continuing our series on self-abandonment. Last week, we had the great fortune to discuss masculine and feminine energies and how our societal conditioning influences the way that we tend to turn on ourselves or leave ourselves behind. And we were able to discuss all of that with the lovely Danae Logan. Danae also co-hosts a podcast called Cheaper Than Therapy with a lovely psychotherapist named Vanessa Bennett. So I wanted to have the two of them on in two separate episodes to get their take on their unique expertise around self-abandonment. So Vanessa Bennett focuses a lot around the concept of codependency and how that is related to kind of putting ourselves on the back burner or making everybody else more important. So I am going to give Vanessa a ring here in a moment. I'm really hoping I can catch her. I know she's been super busy with her toddler and potty training and all of that. So hopefully I can get her on the phone. Let me tell you a little bit about her and and her expertise in this space. She has a background, an entire decade actually, in the New York advertising world and sort of the hustle and bustle, fast-paced world of being a producer and marketing manager for global powerhouses like Coca-Cola, Unilever, P&G. That kind of hustle influenced her to want to have a little bit more balance, decrease the stress, which led her into the world of psychotherapy and and also yoga as well, yoga and meditations. So now she works in Los Angeles as a psychotherapist, as both a mindfulness and codependency coach. She talks, talks a lot about codependency on her TikTok account. I highly suggest you check her out. We'll make sure that we put that in the show notes. And of course, you do not want to miss the Cheaper Than Therapy podcast that she co-hosts with Danae. And I just recently found out her partner is also a therapist as well. And they co-host a show called It's Not Me, It's You, (laughs) which I think is brilliant. So be sure to check those out. We'll definitely put those in the show notes. And if you've been listening to this series either last week, this week, or, or coming up next week, And you've been starting to shine the light on the ways in which you might be abandoning self, whether that's looking like a tight grip on perfectionism or the constant need to make sure that everybody else is okay or bending over backwards, people pleasing, having a tight grip on control and making sure that everything is flawless or perfect, then there might be some deeper work to do. And I think for most of the clients that I see, damn near all of them, when they come to work with me through my Deep Down and Dirty program, almost always they've gotten to a point where the coping mechanisms of trying to be perfect or 
people pleasing or whatever it might be has stopped working or it's gotten to a point where they've recognized that their self-loathing or their self-abandonment has gotten to be so extreme that you can't they can't just stop looking away anymore and it's about really digging deep and making a concerted change if that's you and you know that you cannot keep waking up a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, and still say the same shit about how you don't believe that you're enough or able to accomplish the things that you want. You know very clearly that you're getting in your own way and you don't want that to be the case. You are ready to make a, a switch. Then I really encourage you to go to the joyjunkie.com slash workshop. That is a completely free masterclass that I've put together for you that you can watch at your leisure where I chronicle five major steps and shifts that you need to make in order to let go of some of these behaviors like people-pleasing, perfectionism, etc., so that you can actually believe that you are enough already. Because when you genuinely believe in your own value, in your own worthiness, you go after all of your dreams. You start accomplishing the things that have always been on your heart to accomplish. You start letting go of some toxicity in your world. You, you stop allowing people to treat you poorly. So if you're in that place and you're ready to make that shift, go watch this free workshop. I talk a lot about how the subconscious plays into the way that we show up in the world versus our conscious mind and why sometimes collecting a bunch of personal development is not actually making any change. Have a listen through that. I talk also about my Deep Down and Dirty program and what that looks like. If you are then interested in talking to a member of my team, you will see an offer to do so at the very end of that workshop where you can jump on a call with one of my strategy coaches and they can talk to you about what you've been up against, the changes that you are desiring to make, and if Deep Down and Dirty is the right solution for you. So again, thejoyjunkie.com slash workshop, or it will also be in the show notes if you need. And let me see if I can grab Vanessa and get her on the phone so we can discuss how codependency relates to self-abandonment. Let's do it. Hey, Amy. I'm so glad you called. Hey, Vanessa. I'm so glad I got you. How are you? I'm okay. You kind of caught me at an interesting time, but you know, toddlers and uh, potty training is always an interesting time. So I won't go into details. Oh, well, um, I don't envy you and I also <laughs> admire you, but I, Hey, listen, so I am hanging out here with the audience and we've been talking about self-abandonment and how that relates to codependency. And I know that's something that you talk about constantly, and I would love to get your take on it. Do you have a little yeah. bit of time that I could yeah, kind of- let's do it. Okay, cool. Yay. 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 So as you know, we had Danae on last week, who's mm -hmm. at your brilliant co-part of the Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. And I just adore the two of you so much. And so I'm thrilled to be able to connect with each of you individually. So on this topic of self-abandonment, can you just sort of as a precursor before we jump into this, how do you even define self-abandonment? It's anything we do that really goes against our core 
self with a capital S. So our gut is telling us something and we do something different. I guess our inner, our inner sense of who we are longs for this thing. And yet we do the other thing, or we go the other direction. Um, so it's any time that we are really almost choosing mostly unconsciously, um, but sometimes consciously to go against that, that inner self. And I think a lot of times, I'm not sure if you see this with your clients or not, but where we kind of get to this place where we start to up the ante on the consciousness, where we go, God, I do this a lot, or I let that person get their way a lot. And sort of these things that have been a coping mechanism or have possibly been unconscious in the past are now starting to become really prevalent Mm -hmm. and, oh shit, I need to start shifting some of this in order, in order to, you know, actually find my inner belonging, as you say. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, I think that's step one, right? Step one is actually making the unconscious conscious. And that, that really typically comes from doing, whether it's the therapy or the coaching work, um, you know, sometimes it can come from the aha moments and, and from reading something that really brings something up in you. A lot of times it comes from just deep pain and suffering where, you know, we have these moments where we're like, oh my God, I can't go back in time. Like, this is horrible. And there's that like alchemical kind of burning that's happening where it's like something is coming up that we can't push back down. And so that process usually has to happen first. We've got to make conscious before we can actually start tackling it. Yeah, for sure. I oftentimes will say awareness is the win. Awareness is the win because until you are clear about what is actually transpiring, you can't really untangle right. it or, or, you know, make the, the shift. So I'm curious when we're talking about this concept of self-abandonment, how does that relate or what is the connection with that and codependency? I mean, codependency is self-abandonment. Codependent behaviors are behaviors of self-abandonment. So uh, they go hand in hand. When you are acting out of your codependent behaviors or your codependent personality structure, you are acting out of a place of, of abandoning the self. Um, usually codependency is, is really rooted in, because it's rooted in a, a, a fear of abandonment, and a fear of rejection, uh, we will mold and shape shift ourselves in order to do whatever we've got to do to, to not lose that attachment, right? And so that molding and shape shifting is actually a process and a form of self abandoning. So then, how do you describe? Because I I think there's a handful of terms sort of in the personal development or therapy spheres that get thrown around. Narcissism is one of them. We'll definitely talk about that. But codependency is another one where I think sometimes people conflate their needs or things that they desire inside of a relationship. And I think disproportionately as women, Mm -hmm. we're told you're not expressing things that you might need or desire. Now you're needy. Now that's Mm -hmm. a bad thing. Now you're naggy. So how would you even define codependency then? Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about this a lot when I'm, I'm doing my classes and courses on this topic, which is, you know, the term itself, I mean, it originated in a very specific way, which was to kind of describe the wives of the alcoholic husbands. Right. I and mean, that's really where it started was in the AA and then Al-Anon world. It is now so much larger than that. And, and, you know, in my experience, every single one of us in a Western society. I can't claim to speak for other kind of, um, you know, cultural constructs. 
every single one of us in some way or another has some kind of codependent behavior. So it's not like, oh, I am a full-blown codependent or I am not a codependent. I don't think it's that simple. The way that I really describe it is codependency is simply this. If you're good, I'm good. If you're not good, I'm not good. It's really that simple. So I am basing my emotional self my emotional stability, how I show up emotionally on somebody else outside of myself. Right. So, um, and a lot of times what that also looks like is I'm actually basing my sense of self-worth on somebody else. It's not coming from within. I I kind of always had this idea that it had to be both parties had to be codependent, but it's not, it's more reactionary. You're saying. It can be. Yeah. And I mean, I think the reality actually is that if we're talking about a relationship, so whether that's a friend relationship, romantic, whatever, um, even family, it's very rare that only one person in a dynamic is displaying codependent behaviors or symptoms and the other person is not. So even when we're talking about the traditional kind of typical, what we think of like the substance abuse partner, and then the partner who's the codependent, the person struggling with the substance abuse was displaying codependent tendencies long before they picked up the substance. The behaviors themselves that fall underneath codependency are actually an addiction. They serve the same purpose that somebody that picks up a substance actually serves. They serve to numb, they serve to hide behind, they serve as a way to kind of deflect. So one person's Jack and Coke is another person's people pleasing. They actually serve the same purpose. Yes, 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 yes. This is why I think so frequently when I'm working with clients, I can, I start noticing like these behavioral patterns are addictive, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're, but they're also, we're, we're searching for some sort of remedy to, and I really feel that it's oftentimes when we're talking about substance abuse stuff, it is. I have an emotional feeling that I don't want to be with. So I try to quell it with a physical feeling Mm. because, because our sensory acuity is so uh, not sharp, not acute, I guess. And so we kind of go, oh, I'm, I'm feeling this discomfort emotionally. Uh, Let me, let me drink. Or in some other cases, it's let me garner approval. Let me garner attraction. Let me have other people tell me how amazing I am. Or in our society now, let me see how many fucking likes I can get or get that kind of Well, it's a soothing, it's self-soothing, right? I mean, I'm feeling this uncomfortable thing and I, whatever I've done in the past that I know works for me to soothe that discomfort, I'm going to go for again, right? So if in the past, if I have felt super uncomfortable with conflict, for example, because of, we can go into the whole history and the family and whatever, but if conflict makes me feel very unsafe and very uncomfortable, I'm going to be the peacekeeper because I know that that soothes my internal discomfort with conflict. That's the thing. Me, the peacekeeper, it's not actually about those two people that are in conflict potentially and like helping them. It's actually because I feel so unsafe and uncomfortable with the conflict going on around me that I'm going to soothe my own internal discomfort, right? By, by say, for example, being a peacekeeper. Classic example of that I see all the time is people not being able to be with other people's emotions either, where, you know, the minute I I get so worked up about this, but the minute somebody starts tearing up or getting emotional, 
everyone on the other side oftentimes is don't cry. Don't, right. Here's a tissue. Soothe, wrap, soothe, fix, fix, fix. Like, yeah, shut it down. Wrap it up. I don't, yep. I can't. And it, that's about them not being able to be, I can't totally. be with your humanity. Right. Yeah. So, so this is curious to me. If we're talking about codependency, essentially being, if you're okay, then I'm okay. And conversely, if you're not okay, I'm not okay. How does that then, because I do think that there are a handful of things that happen in personal development where I like to say it's like when self-help goes wrong, where now if that was really the case, if I really truly gave no shits about if somebody was okay or not okay, right. how do I now then be a compassionate, empathetic partner, best friend, mm -hmm. family member? I have my own thoughts about it, but I'm curious what you would say. So here's the thing, like, this is kind of what I was saying about how everybody I think I've ever come in contact with, right. Has some form of codependent tendencies. Um, we are wired. We are born with mirror neurons. That is how we are born. We are wired to be able to empathize. We are wired to be able to reflect back, mirror back to somebody, you know, what they're experiencing in that moment emotionally. Um, it's, it's a survival thing, right? I mean, we're born that sure. way to survive. So that is normal to a certain extent heightened empathy to a certain extent, like wanting to kind of like, Oh my God, my partner's in pain. I feel it. Or like shit, my kid, I physically feel it. Like if she's in pain, I can feel it in my body. I mean, there are, there are reasons for that at like a biological kind of cellular level. Right. When we start to see codependency come into play is when it gets out of control. So I always say for all the recovery, when we talk about codependent stuff, it's about finding your line. Where is that line where it starts to become, it's in control of you. You're not in control of it. It's the tail wagging the dog, right? That is when you know that you are functioning from a state of codependency versus just being empathetic. Because there is such a thing actually as what we call, there's a lot of different ways to call it. Some people call it um, negative empathy. Some people call it toxic empathy, but that's a thing. And mm -hmm. what that is, is that's about me. That's not about you. Right. It looks like empathy but it's actually about my discomfort. It's not actually about helping make you feel better, right? It's, it's disguised as that. I think I even might think that's what it is. It's like this idea of being a caretaker, mm -hmm. people who are caretaking their partners, for example, or their friends, like, I don't want you to feel bad. So I'm going to fix it. Like you said, it's not about you and you're hurting. It's about me not being able to tolerate you when you're hurting, right? That's not empathy. So yes, there is a, a biological component to this that we cannot get away from. Mm -hmm. And where is that line where it is calling the shots? Like I am so incapable of sitting in this, discom this discomfort that I'm going to do all of these different things, all of these different behaviors in order to shut it down. Right. Yes. That's when, you know, it's out of whack. I, I completely agree. And I think so much of what we're dancing around here too, is emotional intelligence mm -hmm. that we're, we're kind of trained to run away from all things emotion. Right. And I right. think that's largely based off being a hyper patriarchal society, yep. but we still make every fucking decision based off of emotions. I mean, yep. we know that, I mean, we can look at marketing, we can look at how social media algorithms are. We make every decision based off of our emotions. So I think sometimes it's not necessarily about anything other than can I be with an uncomfortable emotion? Yeah. If somebody's hurting or in pain, let's say you have a friend who is 
engaging in some detrimental behavior and you're trying to, you know, impart all this wisdom and get them to see their potential and all this sitting in the fact that that's not actually your responsibility and that it's so painful to witness somebody hurting themselves in that way Mm -hmm. and recognizing that it's out of your control, just sitting in that is so wildly fucking uncomfortable that we go into the phrase of there must be something I could do. I need to fix it. I need to fix it. And I think that's also disproportionate for women that we're taught. Well, we're taught to be the fixers. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, and what I'm also kind of hearing from you too, and I think this is the case with narcissism is that codependency is not necessarily always a bad thing. I think we get so intense about narcissism is always bad. I think there's a way to have healthy narcissism. It's sounding like, well, every human being does have healthy narcissism. Every single one of us actually has a certain dose of healthy narcissism. It's it's our ego structure. That's how we're made. (laughs) And I'm glad you said that because it's also sounding similar with codependency where it's like, I don't think you would ever want to get to a place where you didn't give a shit that your daughter was hurting. Right. Exactly. Like, and be I'm, like, you know what? You're on your own kid. You got to feel what you got to feel. Right. And you're removed and distant. Like who wants that? Yeah. I think and, and we do that with everything. We do it with perfectionism. Yep. We do it with people pleasing. We do it. And I'm like, no, there's sometimes like, for example, people pleasing, which I speak about all the time. I think that there's times to do that in your workplace. Let's say when you're trying to get ahead or when you want to make sure that you, from a place of self-preservation, you want to make sure right. you are being looked at favorably. So I think that we just have to be careful about sliding to any end of the spectrum around this is always negative or always Mm -hmm. positive. Well, and I think every single one of those examples you just gave is actually within the symptoms of codependency. So Mm -hmm. whether it's people pleasing, whether it's perfectionism, you know, and, and again, black and white thinking, wanting everything to be in a box, it's got to be this way or this way, and not really having any room for that kind of gray area in between. I mean, these are all symptoms of of codependent behaviors, actually. I mean, these are codependent behaviors rather. Um, And so you're right. It's like sometimes, and this is again, every single one of these behaviors, if you're in recovery and here's the thing, if I say I struggle with codependency, let's say I have a list that I could give you of like 20, let's just say 20 symptoms. The thing that people have to understand too, is that you don't have to check all the boxes to say you struggle with codependency and it's not going to look the same. It's not only going to be codependency in one of your relationships. That's not also not how it works. If I were to look at like my relationship with my mom, I might struggle with symptoms like one, two, and five on that list. In my partnered relationship, it might be eight, nine, and 10. Um, In my friends, it might be 11 and 12. And so it shows up differently because different people bring up different responses in us. We respond differently, like at work, for example, than we're going to in in an intimate situation. But any single, any of those symptoms, even like people pleasing, for example, they're all going to have that line. Where is the line where this becomes unhealthy? That line is going to be different for all of us, right? I can't tell you what that line looks like for you. You need to figure that out through your own work, right? Around this stuff. Mm -hmm. But like people pleasing, I always say to people, um, codependents are are amazing chameleons. Mm -hmm. We have this ability to kind of show up however we need you like, however, rather you need me to show up. So like, I can be whoever I need to be in whatever situation I need to be. Right. That's here's the thing. I love that. I have that talent because now that I understand it and it's not controlling me, I see it as a superpower. 
So I love the ability, like you said, where I've got this like self-preservation where I can be like, okay, I need these people to see me in this way and in this light, because I know how that's going to benefit me, but I'm doing it consciously. It's not again, the tail wagging the dog. Right. And so that's what we have to really understand about these behaviors. Any one of these, I always say they can be your superpower or they can be your kryptonite. It just depends on how well you understand them. And are they in control? I love this. I love that you're saying this because a lot of the ways that or a similar way that I've described it is that is, you know, am I doing these things because it's genuinely fulfilling me like caregiving, for example, mm-hmm. that's a classic people pleasing behavior, right? Mm-hmm. But you could be wildly fulfilled by caretaking or by philanthropy or by impact, but it's a very different thing to say, I'm not valuable or I'm not worthy unless I'm caretaking. Right. Unless they see the value in it, in me. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is so, so fantastic. I'm curious though, where is the line or the delineation between codependency and enmeshment? So I would say that enmeshment is potentially something that ladders up to codependency. I mean, I will say that what we see in enmeshed parents Parents who actually struggle with enmeshment with their children, a lot of times those children will grow up to have codependent behaviors. So a lot of times it is almost like a precursor or it kind of comes along with other behaviors that are codependent behaviors. Um, Because again, this idea of enmeshment really is like, I don't know where I end and you begin. It's like, I'm so involved that I actually can't see my borders, my boundaries. And so enmeshment can, can really just be another symptom of codependent behaviors or codependent personalities. But it sounds like it's more of an extreme. Enmeshment to me is like, when I think back even to like being in school and like learning about, you know, whether it's like child psychology, um, enmeshment feels like one very specific thing. So like I am, I lose myself completely in this person. I am incapable of like separating me from them. And I'm like almost like hovering or smothering. It doesn't necessarily feel like that's bad or like better or worse. It just feels like that is one component of then many other symptoms. That's the way that I look at it. And I kind of work with people on is like, oh, you're, you have enmeshment problems. Great. Well, it's one symptom of probably many of your struggle with codependency, which is really just rooted in your fear of abandonment and your fear of rejection. And so you can kind of follow the thread back and say, they all ladder up to this larger fear, right? We can tackle each of these behaviors and then eventually make our way up into this larger umbrella of your fear of abandonment, right? Like, like if you were to separate yourself and you were to kind of peel your fingers back from this relationship and work on this enmeshment, what comes up, right? Sure. Why are you clinging so much? Like, what is the fear there? Right. Um, and, and most likely that fear is going to be around this not being needed or this fear of being left or this, you know, so they're, they're, they're so intertwined. So it's essentially a myriad of different coping mechanisms. hundred percent. That's exactly what it is. It's what we call maladaptive coping mechanisms, right? It's like, I learned at some point in my journey that if I did this maladaptive thing, I would get this need met potentially. And so once I learned that that worked, I'm just going to keep doing it. Despite how detrimental it could possibly be. Okay. So enmeshment I'm viewing as almost in high school, when you see, you have your friend who all of a sudden they start dating a jock and now they're all into sports Mm -hmm. and they want to wear a letterman jacket and they want to do all, and then they start dating the goth person. And now Mm -hmm. they've got a tongue piercing (laughs) 
<laughs> and, yep. you know, docs and spiky hair and all. And sort of that whole complete loss of self or even where there's no other conversational piece. When mm -hmm. it's like, hey, how are you? And it's only related to that one piece that they've started identifying themselves as. So that's yeah. uh, that's interesting. So then I've always kind of heard interdependency as the like, ah, this is supposed to be the healthy one. So is that true? What are your thoughts on interdependency? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that people are always looking for like, it's kind of like attachment styles, you know, it's like, oh, I'm either this, this or this. It's like, I'm either avoidant or I'm anxious and I should be moving towards more secure. I think people by human nature, I think we all try to like put things into neat little boxes. If using the term or the idea of interdependence is helpful for people to say, this is the North star, this is what I should be moving towards then by all means, because really what you're looking at when you look at like what falls under interdependence is essentially like the healthy versions of these codependent behaviors, right? It's that middle ground. It's that gray area. It's like, I'm able to have, you know, secure and clear boundaries. Um, I'm able to be separated from my partner and come back together with my partner. And that doesn't give me massive anxiety. Um, you know, so it's all these things that would really say it's a secure attachment and I'm not struggling with the tail wagging the dog, if you will, of the, co of those codependent behaviors anymore. I know we've talked a little bit about the symptoms of mm -hmm codependency and what that looks like. And we've danced around a couple of them. And I know you did a whole series of this on TikTok, which we'll definitely link to your TikTok channel. And we talked about a couple of them, but one that you just brought up here, the idea of being massively anxious when somebody's, when you're away from someone, are there, are there a handful of other ones? I know we talked about people pleasing, anything else that you wanted to throw in so that people could kind of go, oh, shit, maybe I do have some codependent behaviors that I didn't recognize. This need to be needed is one of them, right? So like equating need, being needed with being loved. I see this a lot. Wow. Um, so it's like, okay, so if I'm not providing value in some way, then am I even worth it? Right. And so this is where we see this, a lot of this caretaking, um, and the kind of problem solving and the fixing, and, you know, I need to be doing constantly in order to be worthy of love, having a fear, like a guilt for being assertive or speaking up, having a lot of guilt around that. Um, you know, a lot of codependency is really rooted in lack of self period. So really not knowing, like, it's not as easy to say to somebody who's struggling with codependency, I'm not going to go, Oh, just go communicate your needs. Because for most of us at the beginning of our healing journey, it's going to be like, well, I don't even know what my fucking needs are. Right. I don't know what my needs are. I don't know what my wants are. I don't know what my desires are because codependency work at its core is actually identity work, mm -hmm. right? It's actually about who am I even underneath it all. And so many of us have created a structure of identity around being needed, around being successful, around being this certain thing to this certain person, um, Oh, your feelings are hurt. Okay. Let me tend to that, but not pay attention to myself. It's all outward. Right. And so, so much of this is really about like learning who the hell I am. So, you know, that was a long winded way to say, like, maybe not being really clear on what your needs, your desires, your wants are not even being able to communicate them. This idea of like having a fear of being judged. If you kind of were open about what you needed and what you wanted, right. This fear of being needy, quote unquote, yeah. um, Another one that I see show up is, is this like, is ruminating. So frequently obsessing about interactions with people long after they're over and done with. And again, it's about me like, oh my God, if I had said this differently, then this would have gone differently. And what if I had done this? And what if I had done that? 
you'll see a lot of like victimhood and martyr syndrome yes. in people who struggle with codependency, right? Um, that's a very addictive feeling to be the victim. Absolutely. Because yeah. then you, you literally have to take zero ownership, you zero action. Like you, you can just wallow in, yeah. first of all, the attention yep. that you get, but then also in lack of action. You just don't yeah. have to do a damn thing. Yeah. It's, it's so lazy. <laughs> it but is. Under, and again, it's under- a maladaptive coping strategy, right? It is something that we've learned along the way to, to save ourselves and make ourselves feel better and to survive. But, but yes, I a hundred percent agree with you. And I'll tell you when I give my classes, I, I usually say like at the beginning of each one of my classes, you're going to hear some shit about yourself that you do not want to hear and that you do not like. That's right. You know, I say like codependency is, is riddled with control and manipulation, um, you know, and no one wants to hear that about themselves. And if you're really ready to confront this and do the work, then you're going to have to hear some shit, you know? So yeah, that victimhood thing is a big one. And I think something that you underlined here just a second ago is that I think always warrants repeating is that we are doing all of these things to take care of ourselves most of the time in dire situations in family of origins that weren't mm-hmm. protective or in intimate partnerships that were negligent or abusive. And I think, thank God, we're starting to see so much more evidence around behaviors that we've accepted from other people that we've just adapted to, maladapted to. Instead of going, hey, it's not okay to treat people like that or to say those things or that's actually abuse. Whereas my generation and my mom's generation, you know, I think of X Gen, I think is starting to come around a little bit with it. But, you know, from my mom, like a lot of that generation is just suck it up or that's not Mm -hmm. a big deal. You know, all of that sort of these concepts around abandoning self, like Mm -hmm. truly abandoning self. Well, here's what's really interesting about that, Amy, because you're right. I say this to people, I have a whole series around upbringing and I, and I tell people a lot, you know, you're right. That generation prior to gen X, which is really like the boomer generation, which mm-hmm. by the way, fascinatingly enough, there have been studies that have shown that the boomer generation has the highest amount of narcissism of any generation. I do not doubt it. Which then think about then how that, then that parenting style that yes. affects the generation after right now you have a massive generation of codependents out there. Not surprising, by the way, they're that generation of like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Children should be seen and not heard. You're too much right now. Go to your room and come back when you're calm. Right. Um, And so all of these types of parenting is what we see then kind of manifest into these codependent behaviors. Right. So speaking of narcissism, we've, we've Mm -hmm. talked about this a little bit. Talk to me and I'm starting to kind of see it a little bit clearer now, but I'd love your, your take on the connection between codependency and narcissism. Oh, this is a hot one. <laughs> People hate when I talk about this because I think it makes them squirm, the codependence anyway on, the, on that side. Codependency and narcissism as personality structures are actually very similar. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of overlap. The kind of biggest component is that both of them are other oriented, mm-hmm. meaning I get my sense of self outside of myself. The major difference here is that the narcissistic, the drivers or the, the intentions behind the behaviors, um, usually are less kind, <laughs> you know, they're both self-serving both the codependent and the narcissist, but usually the codependent, even if it really is in like, I need to soothe my own anxiety, there is a lot of care and empathy that, that is going into the behaviors, right? Even if it gets out of control, that's not the case with the narcissist. It's an indulgence. It's, it's a lot more about like the ego. It's a lot more about like, um, 
I don't know, I want to say negative, but that just feels too, too broad. Whereas again, the, the codependence kind of drive is, is more in, I care too much, but people hate hearing that because especially on the codependent side, I'm like, Ooh, I hate to say this, but this is why those two personality structures do tend to be so attracted to each other because it's just like any other structure. When we look at like the anxious and the avoidant attachment style, they love each other, right? When we look at the over-functioner and the under-functioner, yep. they love each other. Same thing with the coda and the narcissist, right? They love each other. There's a lot of similarities and yet they activate the shit out of each other. And so that's why they tend to be so drawn, or that's why you'll have a narcissistic parent that will essentially create a codependent child because of this, the similarity in the structure. That's super fascinating. I had always thought that sort of the definition of narcissism, and I could be completely off on this, was sort of a fundamental lack of empathy, a lack of understanding what's happening over there. That's a symptom a symptom of narcissism for sure. But the actual kind of construct of narcissism as a personality structure really has to do with um, at some point, whether it was capital T trauma or like a lifetime of lowercase T trauma, at some point you learned that your sense of self was just such garbage. Like you are, you feel like you are such a, such a piece of garbage that you can't tolerate that true belief. Like none of us can really tolerate at our absolute core that we are completely and totally useless as a human being. There's nothing good about us at all. What happens is if I have that belief, especially as a child, I'm going to build walls around that and guards around that. Right. And so then I structure that that's like this tiny little thing in the center. And then around that is all of these egoic structured walls of like, I'm awesome. I'm great. You're horrible and I'm good. And then we start to see all these narcissistic behaviors. All of those behaviors are basically defending against this real true core belief, actually, that I'm completely worthless. Yes. Interesting. So it, I'm kind of picturing all of us on a battlefield, you know, being kind of wounded and then just picking up anything we can to protect ourselves. So some people choose a sword, some people choose a bow and arrow, some people choose, you know, just a shield. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to hide under this shield. And then those all have subsequent behavioral issues. If you pick up the shield of narcissism, now you, it becomes sort of a, someone's got to win me, either you win or I win. And sh I sure as fuck, I'm going to win. Yes. Yep. Survival literally like it, it's like a, to the death kind of thing. And the thing that's so interesting about narcissism is that that personality structure, this is where you'll see the difference between the narcissist and the codependent. First and foremost, I get asked this question all the time. Oh my God, but am I a narcissist? Does that mean I'm a narcissist? Well, if you're asking me that question, most likely the answer is no, <laughs> because the thing that's interesting about the narcissistic structure is that, and as therapists, we actually say amongst ourselves that they're like, most of us really intensely dislike working with narcissists, even if they ever come in your door, because as a therapist, it's rare. They'll usually get dragged there by right. a partner, right? Because they don't have the ability to be insightful. They don't have the ability to have self-awareness right. because if they really had a moment of insight, if they had a moment of self-awareness, it could potentially crumble their entire ego structure to the point of when I say crumble, I mean, potentially full psychotic yeah. break. Yes. Yes. Right. Because they have armored themselves so much that if anything were to get in there and penetrate it, it could be really like devastating to their, to their structure of ego. This is one of the, the most challenging things I think in the psychological space, because I connect with a lot of people who are trying to communicate with nar the extreme narcissists. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not oh, talking yeah. about how we all have this healthy dose of narcissism. I'm talking about extreme narcissistic behavior 
And Mm -hmm. so when I, you know, like when I was on your all show, I was talking about, you know, various ways to communicate or how to speak up for yourself and things like that. That is, those are completely off the table when we're talking about dealing with a narcissist, because now we're talking about an abuser. So you don't try to rationalize (laughs) or have thoughtful, vulnerable conversations with somebody who's struggling with that. And which is also why they get dragged to therapy, but they don't think that there's anything wrong with them. Right. Right. You know, the only time that I would say, I mean, when you have the parental figure, for example, that has the narcissistic personality, sometimes we do need to learn to um, relate differently with them. If we're not in a place where we're like, oh, I'm going to cut them out of my life completely. And so what people really need to understand is exactly what you're saying. You don't get vulnerable. There are, what happens is you have to create boundaries around yourself about what you're willing to give and not give, um, receive, not receive, tolerate. Right. And it's all on you to establish what that relationship looks like, sounds like, feels like moving forward. And then you then have to enact it and enforce it with that, that narcissist is if it's somebody in your life that you can't just get away from, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have a relationship. Like let's say it's a parent doesn't mean you have to cut the parent out of your life. It just means you have to radically alter your expectations of what this relationship is going to look like or what it's going to give you in return. And then it becomes you and your expectations, right? Like that's, that's your work in that relationship is managing those. And it's, God, it's fucking painful It is because we, we all want, especially a parent, right? Like we all have a desire or a need or a want. And when it really becomes that obvious that there is no effing way I'm getting this, there's a lot of grief in that. There is. And I, I think also biologically and primitively we're rooting for our parents. Like they totally, they're supposed to provide for us physically, emotionally, Mm -hmm. all of those things. And so the idea that you may never get that, you may never Mm -hmm. get those needs met. There Mm -hmm. is an onslaught of grief, like you were saying, but I think that the real, the antidote or really the only action step that we can have with that is obviously doing our own personal work to find fulfillment outside of that, but to boundary the fuck up, like you have to Mm -hmm. boundary up with people like that. Well, and depersonalize, depersonalize it because now it's not about you. It's not about you not being worthy of their love. It's about their complete. And this is, this is romantic too, right? If it's a romantic narcissistic partner, it's not about you not being good enough. It's about them not being capable Mm -hmm. period. Hard stop. Yes. Right. So if I know that they are not capable of doing X, Y, and Z or giving X, Y, and Z, and I keep trying to get it from this person. Yes. There's a lot to look at there. Right. I I oftentimes will liken that to having a gluten intolerance and being like, no, but I'm going to eat (laughs) this bread, but no, I'm going to do, no, I'm going to, and it's going to feel better this time. I know it. (laughs) There must be something I can do. There must be. And then it's like, but we don't have to stand back and be pissed off at gluten and be like, you're so fucked up. You're this, you're that. You just have to recognize, Hey, that doesn't work for my system. So, and that's the depersonalization, right? It's dealing with the parent. It's dealing with the, the partnership that didn't work out to say, oh, I don't have to stand here and fucking hate you and diagnose you and all of those things. I can quite simply say at your place in your life and what you are and are not capable of, you do not work with my system. Mm -hmm. And therefore 
I'm going to pay attention to the things that do work for my system that do actually feel synergistic. So, and I would say too, be very, very careful when we're out there throwing around diagnoses on other people, I would be like, why don't we turn the mirror around? Because while it's helpful to have a structure and a framework and say there's narcissists, so they're not capable of X, Y, and Z. Sometimes throwing around those, those labels can also just be another form of keeping myself in a state of victimhood. I completely agree. I'm so glad you brought this up. I see this a lot with toxic people where we, where we label, they are toxic and I'm like, are they, or have you actually not adequately advocated for your own needs in a way in which you could actually be heard because it's, or if they are toxic, right, maybe they don't have the capacity and they can't hear you. That's fine. But then why are you attracted to the toxic person? Yes. Let's talk about that because that's your role in this. I'm not victim, you know, bashing here and saying that, like, if somebody's abusive, it's your fault. But I am saying if we hide behind the, like, well, they're toxic and they gaslight me, we're not looking at the, then why were you drawn to the gaslighting toxic person to begin with? That's right. And if you don't get to that point, then bet your ass the next person you're with is going to be another toxic guest later, right? Mm-hmm. Completely. <laughs> yeah. Completely. So I'm, I'm so with you on this also because there's a sliding scale of narcissism. Like it's not totally, it's a personality spectrum. It is a complete spectrum. And there are parts of it that I think are totally work withable you know, that you can surmount that you can have thoughtful understanding with, but that's going to take maturity on your behalf and working through your own shit. And I am constantly looking at, as I'm sure you are too, with both my husband, my colleagues, my best friends, whenever there's unrest, I'm constantly checking in on, especially if I feel victimized, what, Mm -hmm. what's my role have, Mm -hmm. what am I contributing to this piece? Not so that I can stand in self-loathing or, oh, I'm not enough, but to have really solid responsibility to break these patterns that we've learned. So what the fuck do we do about this? What Mm -hmm. can we actually do people? So let's say people are listening and they're going, Oh my gosh, I've been calling my mom a narcissist and just writing her off and not looking at any of my own shit or, Oh my God, I'm totally codependent. I didn't realize, or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it might be, where do they start? I mean, it, it feels big, especially when I say things like codependency recovery is actually identity work, right? That feels like, oh my God, I have to discover my identity. But this is the thing. It's a, it's a lifelong process. The, the road of recovery from things like codependency is not something that you just do overnight or like in a year of therapy. I have been doing my recovery journey for almost 15 years mm-hmm. and there's just new layers that come up as I feel safer to go deeper and get more vulnerable, right. As I do my recovery, the guess what that deeper vulnerability then just brings up new layers of, of, of shit and of discomfort and, and fear of abandonment and all these things. So I will say, give yourselves a break. It, it is a lifelong process. It's not something that you can be like, poof, I'm cured. The thing is, is that my partner is actually the one that always says the work quote unquote is 50% revelation and 50% action. Mm-hmm. So you're having the revelations. That's awesome. That's step one, like you and I were talking about earlier, and that's only half of the equation. So the other half of the equation is actually doing the thing that makes you so uncomfortable. You literally want to rip your skin off. Mm. That's how uncomfortable it feels. Yeah. Let's say your struggle is with boundaries, right? Or with speaking up for yourself. Mm -hmm. It's in that moment of 
what I want to do in this moment is shut down or I want to hide or I want to lash out or whatever your kind of way of dealing with that, that discomfort is it's in that moment where we're creating very small speed bumps to take a pause, right? And instead of reacting, we get to respond, which is like, okay, taking a right turn would be what I've always done. It would be to shut down to whatever, all the things I just said, taking a left turn would actually say, you know what, that really hurt my feelings. And I don't appreciate that, that kind of language. And so moving forward, you know, I don't think we should use words like that when we're talking to each other. I don't think we should name call. I don't think we should X, Y, and Z, right. And establishing something very clear with a partner, with a friend, with a parent doesn't matter. And if that's the thing that makes you want to like throw yourself out of a window, great. That's what you got to do. That's right. That's literally what you have to do in order to progress on, on this journey. And it sounds scary, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It can be in bite sizes. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you're going to build your tolerance for this stuff very slowly. No one's expecting you to go out and just start slaying boundaries right mm -hmm. away. I'm still not good at it. And I've been doing this shit for 15 years. Right. You're going to, you're going to fuck up. You're going to look stupid. You're going to sound stupid. You're going to cry. You know, it, this is normal. You're normal, but you do it anyway. That's right. And you keep doing it. And that that's, that's it. That's the recovery. I was just talking about this with another colleague of, you know, when I, we're talking about these concepts of kind of bucking against codependency or learning how to speak up for yourself, changing some of these behavioral patterns. We're not doing it just for the fuck of it. We're not doing it because it's this personal development soundbite or this thing mm -hmm. that, oh, I should do to be a better person. We're doing it because quite literally your self-worth depends on it. Yeah. So if you're struggling because you're like, uh, I don't think I deserve to be loved, or I'm not willing to go after this new job that I really want to create. That is all rooted in your self-worth. It's directly mm -hmm. related to speaking up for yourself because when you are engaging with people and you let you abandon self, mm -hmm. you make sure everybody else is taken care of. And you do that chronically consistently over and over and over again, you're sending that message to yourself that your wants, opinions, and needs just don't matter as much right. as everyone else. That is your fucking self-worth. Yes, totally. That's why when Vanessa's talking about do it anyway, even though it's so uncomfortable and you, you know, it's, it's challenging to change these neural pathways in the brain. We're not doing it just for a fun exercise. It is because mm -hmm. on the other side of that, when you have that self-worth, Every fucking thing in your life changes. changes you only right. have healthy, positive relationships. You start going after your dreams and your goals. You start having really positive exchanges. Intimacy. That's, yeah. that's what we're all craving, right? We want intimate connection with other people. Well, and you said this thing about neural pathways and just to kind of like, if you're a science nerd like me, I mean, you can even look at this idea of like building resiliency from the, from the, the neuroscience perspective, which is, you know, you've got to give yourself tiny doses of this discomfort so that when you get to the other side of it, you say to yourself, oh, I survived. Yes. Right. Metaphorically, probably, but the reality is this is survival. Like your nervous system is wired to help you survive. And so if it feels that uncomfortable, it's going to do whatever it's got to do to not feel that yep. because it literally translates it with dying, like mm -hmm. abandonment equals death. Yes. So if you give yourself this tiny dose of like, I'm going to set this boundary, even if it feels huge in the moment, you give yourself this dose, you get to the other side and it doesn't matter on what that person or how that person responds, by the way, mm -hmm. even if it blows up in your face. You get to the other side of saying the thing 
you're actually starting to give your nervous system the truth of, oh, I did this thing. I can survive, which means I can do it again Mm -hmm. and again and again and again. And so it's a slow process of actually building tolerance in your system for being able to sit with these overwhelming feelings and not just abort immediately. Right. Um, and, and there is a process to that and, and it is, it's linked to neuroscience. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is, like I said, it's for the science nerds, right? Yes. I love that. I love talking about that concept and like neural plasticity and how we are able to be malleable in the brain, because then it takes out this notion of why am I like this? Why am I not failure? Yeah. I'm such a fuck up. And I'm like, ah, it's literally science. Like there's a very distinctive reason why we've adopted all of these behaviors. So Oh my gosh, Vanessa, I, I feel like I just want to have a podcast with you and Danae over and over and over <laughs> <I've> had, <laughs> all the time, all the time. Oh, I just adore the two of you. And it's been such a treat to have your separate insight, completely different directions that we went all around this concept mm-hmm. of self-abandonment. So, uh, it's been such a pleasure. I know the two of you have a retreat coming up. So tell us a little bit about that and then where people can find you if they want to stock you out. And we'll put that all in yeah. the show notes. Yeah. I mean, funny enough that you were already planning on doing this kind of series or conversations around self-abandonment. That's really what the retreat is about. So Danae and I are getting together. Um, we're going to do an actual in-person retreat, which feels insane at this point point in time, right. In our lives. Um, we're like all hungry for real live human connection. Safety precautions are all going to be in place and things like that, but it's going to be in a place called carefree Arizona, uh, which is this lovely little like pocket of healing, um, kind of nestled in the mountains. And it's going to be a week long. It's the first week of January. So the second till I believe the seventh, we literally just signed the contract. We're so excited about it. Um, and it's all about from self-abandonment to inner belonging. So we're going to get in there, talk about the root cause of all this stuff. Um, start kind of challenging these, these false beliefs and then get into the tangible tools as well, but there's going to be sound baths and there's going to be movement and meditation and all kinds of goodies, uh, for the soul. So you should join us. It's going to be fun. And you should join us. Amy. I'm, be fun. I was, I'm thinking about it. I'm, I was like, Oh, that sounds amazing. So where, where's the URL or where do they go? So you can find it on, um, right now on our Instagram, we'll link out to everything. Um, we're literally just signing contracts, dotting, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. So for now, if you go to my Instagram, Vanessa S Bennett, B E N N E T T, um, in my profile, I have all the links to everything. You can find it there. Um, cool. and then I'm also on TikTok as the Coda Yoda. Mm-hmm. And that's just where I serve you up some bite-sized codependency specific stuff. Cause Instagram is kind of all of the the musings, if you will. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. This is, this has been such a f- amazing conversation. I always get like, why, why can't I go for two hours or three hours? Or, I know, know, right? Same. You're just positively delicious. So thank well, when we become the Tim Ferriss's of the world, we can then go for like two hours, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, thank you for taking the time out from your very busy potty training. <laughs> I'm glad I caught you at such a good time. And um, I just adore you, my friend. Thank you for sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Oh, wow. Well, I am so glad that I had the great fortune to get her on the line. She is a wealth of information. I hope that you found some really awesome nuggets and tidbits and insights 
from what Vanessa shared with us today. And as always, I really think it's important that we don't just consume. Even as Vanessa mentioned earlier, it's not just about the awareness, it's also about the action. So instead of just consuming all of this information, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to change or alter or what are the shifts that you're going to make in order to start implementing some of this stuff. It might be heightening awareness. It might be hiring your own coach or therapist or checking out the workshop that I have for you at thejoyjunkie.com slash workshop. It could be digging into a book about codependency. What is the action step? Maybe it's even speaking up for yourself. Maybe it's noticing who are the people in my life that trigger me where I tend to abandon myself. I quiet myself. I silence my tongue. And I actually need to be vocal. Where are those places? So start thinking, what are my action steps? And it's okay if it's a baby step. And it's okay if there's just one. But for goodness sakes, please do something. Don't just turn off your iPod or I don't know. Do people have iPods anymore? (laughs) Such a Gen Xer. Oh my God. Turn off your podcast device (laughs) and just decide like, oh, that was some good information. No, I want you to actually do something with it. All right, my friends, next week I'm going to be sounding off on a solo episode where I share with you my personal thoughts on self-abandonment and how it's been showing up in the, the work that I do. I hope you stick around for that. So I will see you around these parts next week. Here is to loving and living your most badass life. 